from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta, welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Our first reading this morning comes from Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17. Then God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol, whether in the form of anything that is in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing children for the iniquity of parents to the third and fourth generation of those who reject me, but showing steadfast love to the thousandth generation of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. You shall not do any work, you, your son, or your daughter, your male or female slave, your livestock, or the alien resident in your towns. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, but rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and consecrated it. Honor your father and your mother, so that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or male or female slave, or ox, or donkey, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Palmer. Our second reading this morning comes from the second chapter of John's Gospel, verses 13 through 22. The Passover of the Jews was near, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables. Making a whip of cords, he drove all of them out of the temple, both the sheep and the cattle. He also poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. He told those who were selling the doves, Take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. His disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then said to him, What sign can you show us for doing this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, This temple has been under construction for 46 years. And will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, 
and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Will you pray with me? God, as we seek to know you and your call in our lives better, may these words and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Amen. This story about Jesus in the temple might be very familiar to you. It's shared in some form in all of the Gospels. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Gospels, this is a story that happens once Jesus has entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. The temple is one of his last stops before his arrest, so you may have heard this read during Holy Week. But here, in the account from John's Gospel, we have Jesus visiting the temple during the first of a few visits to Jerusalem through the Gospel. This story comes immediately after the story of the wedding at Cana, a story of celebration, of plenty, of blessing. Jesus has just performed the miracle of changing water into wine, the first of his signs. And John writes, and revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. As we turn our focus back to the story of Jesus at the temple, I want to keep in mind the miracle of providing that Jesus has just performed. These two stories right at the beginning of John's gospel are setting up for us who Jesus is. They're showing us his character. In my time growing up in the church, I've found that we, we meaning the mostly white, the mostly educated, the mostly affluent Presbyterian church, much prefer to focus on the story of Jesus providing to the story of Jesus getting angry. In my own preaching and teaching, I think I spend a lot more time speaking about the Jesus who provides than speaking about the Jesus who gets angry. Not that it's bad to reflect on the providing Jesus, but I think that it might do us some good to look at this angry Jesus and ask questions about him and strive to understand him better. I think that we've been afraid of anger for a long time, but that it might be healthy to learn how to use anger for good. In 1667, the Virginia Assembly, a group of white Anglican men, passed a law that Christian baptism would not, not free an enslaved person in the colonies. And I've known about the segregation maintained in the American church since colonizers arrived in this land, but I didn't know of this specific event until recently. I read about it in 400 Souls, a community history of African America, 1619 to 2019. Each entry is written by a different person this chapter by Jamar Tisby, a historian, theologian, and author. He explains what happened in the earliest church plants on this soil, creating a division that would last centuries. With the world seemingly at their fingertips, the newly arrived English needed to establish rules for their society. They decided that if an enslaved person chose to get baptized, 
this would do nothing for their worldly status. They would continue to be enslaved here on earth, though I'm sure the slave owners argued that they were free in Christ. What I find most interesting is what Tisby shares next. He writes that in England, it had been the custom that Christians could not enslave other Christians. Spiritual equality, if it meant anything, meant that Christians should promote and ensure the liberty of their religious sisters and brothers. Christians could not enslave other Christians. So these men came from a place that didn't allow them to own Christians, but here they are making their new rules fit what they needed to benefit from the system of slavery. I hope, why, I hope we can see why this is wrong. Owning people, Christian or not, is bad. Slavery is evil. We should know that now. Tisby reflects on this peculiar, though maybe not too peculiar, knowing the racial history of this country, this peculiar legal development explaining how this law was necessary to maintain slavery. The slave owners couldn't evangelize something that was very important to them if it meant they were gonna lose their slaves. So they manipulated the law. They chose to combine their religion with their business and their politics to create something that would allow them, the slave owners, to maintain the upper hand in each of those spheres of life. The slave owners could still be seen as the evangelizers following God's mission. And they would get to keep their free labor. And they would get to keep all of the political and legal power. And after establishing this new law, and there would be others, the white Christian leaders made the move of saying that slavery was outside the purview of the church. Step one, make a religious law that maintains the system of slavery. Step two, tell abolitionists that it is not the church's job to get rid of slavery. It makes me angry. And it's okay if you're feeling stirrings of anger. Nowadays, we can give in to the feelings of anger that slavery evokes in us. We can be mad at the fact that white colonists cared more about their money than about their faith in other humans. Anger is a valid human emotion, but we don't always know what to do with it. So let's jump back to that passage from John, where Jesus is mad. Seeing people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and the money changers seated at their tables, Jesus makes a whip out of cords to drive the sheep and the cattle out. And he pours out the money changers' bags and throws over the tables. He yells to the people selling pigeons, take these things out of here. Stop making my father's house a marketplace. How can this be the same guy who just turned water into wine at a wedding? Where's the blessing? Where's the providing? Jesus is mad. He's angry that the temple, the house of God, has been made into something that doesn't necessarily serve God or God's mission. Yes, all of these market transactions were necessary for the functioning of the temple. 
But notice that Jesus doesn't drive any of the people away, only the animals. The exploiters are not driven away from the temple, only their means of exploitation. Maybe Jesus' anger is pointing to the idea that this entire system might not be necessary anymore. And I want to be clear on this point. In no way is this meant to be against Judaism or Jewish people. Jesus is pointing to the institutional corruption that has manifested itself in these markets. And that religious institutional corruption has been present in other faiths. In Christianity, we have a legacy of much worse corruption. And Jesus' anger shows us that we can be angry at corruption and injustice too. Dr. Willie Jennings is a professor at Yale Divinity School, and he's written about anger, both God's and our own, and he makes some great points. The first is the insight that we are afraid of anger because we know what it can lead to. If we aren't careful, anger, anger leads us into hatred. And if we get to hatred, we aren't far from violence. And all of us are aware of the ways that violence destroys everyone and everything in its path. So how do we allow anger to live in us without being drawn into hatred? Jennings suggests that what keeps anger from touching hatred isn't the cunning of reason or the power of will. It is simply Jesus. Jesus, fully human, fully divine. Jesus, son of man. Jesus, our savior and our redeemer. Jesus who provides and Jesus who gets angry. Because Jesus is fully divine, he's not taken down the road into hatred. Anger can live in Jesus without him being lured into hatred and violence. And if we are able, as John later writes, to abide in Jesus, we, can, we too can live into healthy anger. The other point that Jennings makes about anger is that we must be careful to not say that whatever we are angry about, God is angry about. That's not how it works. We don't get to claim something is an injustice because it suits our situation to say so and then declare God's righteous anger is also against it. Jennings makes two qualifications for aligning our anger with God's anger. First, it must be about the destruction of life. Quick or slow, it doesn't matter. The point is that life is being taken away, being drained away. Second, it must be shareable. In fact, it must be shared. If we are to claim that we are angry at something that God is also angry at, it must be something that we can enter into together. It needs to be something that we can claim as a community. It needs to be an anger that we feel with and for one another. So what then can we be angry about with God? Remember, it needs to be about the destruction of life and it needs to be shared. So here are a few things I think we can, be, we can practice being angry about. I'm angry 
at the enormous loss of life that has come from this COVID pandemic. More than 500,000 people in this country are gone. How many more family members and friends are now without that person? I think we can be angry and claim that God is angry too at the lack of care for our neighbor's health that has been shown for so long. I'm angry at how many people are starving and struggling to feed their families. And I think God might be angry that we can't figure out a better way to give each person enough to go to bed with something in their stomachs and a roof over their head. I'm angry that there are people out there who think that love outside of the man-woman binary is a reason to attack. I think that God might be angry that we don't value the divine image in our neighbor. I'm angry at how many people walk the streets or take public transportation or just try to live their life all while frightened that the next person they encounter won't see their life as worth anything. I'm angry that black trans women get killed in droves. I'm angry that black and brown bodies have to navigate life with so many more hurdles than white people. I think that God might be angry that for each child that God sees as beloved, there are people who see them as an enemy. I could be wrong, but I hope that these things, these ways that we suffer as a community, are things that we can say God might be angry at with us. God is not for the destruction of life or the suffering of a people group or the isolation of anyone. God is for life and for love and for flourishing. Where do we go from here? Anger can be used to help us identify those areas of our society and culture that need fixing. Jennings tells us that anger is the engine that drives hope because this anger, this God-bound anger, turns us toward the urgency of the moment, as Martin Luther King Jr. said so eloquently, and the deep desire for a changed world. Anger drives the hope that we strive to live into as an Easter people. During the season of Lent, we look ahead to Jesus' entry into Jerusalem and his arrest and his death, and we look forward to the resurrection, the hope of new life in Christ. Anger can drive the hope that allows us to change the world. In his anger, I think that Jesus is blessing us and providing us a better way of being faithful in this story at the temple. His disciples remember the passage from the psalm saying, zeal for your house will consume me. And speaking of events to come, Jesus tells the people, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. As we read in the opening of John's gospel, Jesus is the word in the flesh of God. We might know God by knowing Jesus. And knowing Jesus and what that means looks like loving one another. 
Jesus is overturning tables and driving the animals out because the system is corrupt. Faith isn't the issue. It's what has been done to it. There are still systems, old and new in our faith, that have tables that need to be overturned. We'll need to keep a careful eye and our ears open to the voices of our neighbors to find those. We will need to let our anger, that anger that we enter into as a community, guide us toward hope and constant reforming. In spite of the hypocrisy of white Christian slave owners and missionaries, black people still heard some of the dignifying and liberatory strains within the Christian message. There is always hope. As long as we continue to love God, love neighbor, and love ourselves, there is hope. We will get angry, but if we can hold that anger in Jesus and avoid the temptation to slip into hatred and violence, we can overturn some tables and make our world a bit safer and life-giving for everyone. And for that hope, I give thanks to God. Amen. Lord, as your word has reminded us today, sometimes Christ shows up in ways in which we would not necessarily desire or prefer. And as we meet Jesus again in the temple, possessing a righteous anger, it does shock us, it startles us, it confronts us. And as Keith invited us to consider, it also is an opportunity for us to be formed, formed in his likeness, formed in such a way that recognizes the power of anger when we see things in our lives, in the life of the church, in the life of the world that do not align with your kingdom, that do not align with the ways in which you breathe life into us and into all of your creation. For the ways in which we have shared grief, shared lament, shared anger, In all the ways your image is defiled and your creation is neglected. And so we'd ask, O oh Lord, that you would give us the courage to live into this righteous anger. Places where we could speak your truth in love. Would you give us a boldness to do such things? Would you give us courage to do such things? And would you also give us a humility to recognize where we need to have that same anger toward ourselves? Not in a way that diminishes our own humanity or undercuts our own sense of worthiness, but really speaks to the places where our lives do not align with your love and your life and that which you came to live for and die for, that very kingdom. 
We do pray, Lord, for your church, for this church, for its people, all who grieve, all who lament, all who are ill, those who are on the precipice of breathing their last, those who are walking with people who suffer. We'd ask that you would give us exactly what we need to be faithful in these days, that you'd give us what we need to be more like your son Jesus who continues to bid us to come and follow him on this Lenten road. Give us a double portion of your grace. Give us your spirit so that we may be found faithful in this very hour. We pray this with gratitude and thanksgiving knowing that you hear every prayer that we make. And we make this one in the name of Christ, our Lord, our Savior, our friend, and our brother, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Friends, as we abide in Jesus, let's get angry. And let's use our anger to motivate the hope we live into in the risen Christ. And let us go knowing the love of God the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit go with us each day. Amen.